Please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ruth 4, verses 13 to 22. Please read with me the verses in bold. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Chris. I think, Chris, when you came up, I, it, it triggered something in my mind that I, like in the announcement that I was going to make was about our prayer ministry. Uh, we have a prayer ministry that we're starting up again. I, I think we have always been praying, but we're planning on praying on Sunday mornings at 9.45 here for about 30 minutes here at the church. And so, um, again, we would love for you to come and, and join us for prayer as we pray for the, the ongoings of our church and our leadership and, and so many different things that happen are our Sunday services. Again, every Sunday here at 9.45. And so I welcome you to that. Um, would you join me in prayer as we begin this time in the Word? Uh, Father, we, God, we need you. God, we need you in a time like this. Um, Lord, we see so much pain and so much heartache and so much brokenness and fallenness to a world. God, we confess, Lord, that we need you. God, we also admit that we don't know how to answer the questions, the, the darkness of the times around us. But God, I pray, Lord, that you would Remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that as we hear your word, I pray that you would speak through me. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear your words loud and clear. Use me as a mouthpiece. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across a strange story on my news feed this week. Actually, it was a, a week and a half ago. Now, don't ask me which news feed. <laughs> But it was a story about a 35-year-old Japanese man who married a young woman by the name of Hatsune Miku. Now, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly or if I'll get blasted on social media for sharing this story. But this is not your typical wedding story. Miku is a well-known pop star in Japan and has been for over a decade. She even went on a world tour eight years ago with Lady Gaga. Now, what makes the story so bizarre is Miku is not real. 
She's a virtual pop star. She's a fictional hologram created by a Japanese media company. Now, this man has taken a calculated risk. He told the news outlet that he had long decided that he was not interested in being with a human partner and that Miku would never betray him like a human partner potentially could. He also noted that she will never get sick or die. That's one way to avoid some of the hardships of life. And I love the response of, uh, that this 35-year-old man gives about how people have reacted to this marriage to this young virtual pop star. He said, his coworkers reportedly bullied him and two of his colleagues called him gross. It's supposed to generate some laughter right there. Uh, like I said, I'm gonna get blasted on social media maybe. Uh, and they said that he's gross and they avoided him. Now that's a story. Uh, it's great reporting uh, by this news outlet. I know I, I just I click on these, um, these stupid stories. It's, they're so fun. But you know, you come across uh, stories like the one we find in the book of Ruth and think that what we've been reading in the book of Ruth is a bit bizarre and strange and, and weird altogether. There's enough story or detail in the story to indicate that a wedding in those times were very different than what takes place today. And for your information, I'm not talking about Miku. I'm talking about some semblance of normal. For each culture and each tradition, each family differ on how they might celebrate or commemorate a wedding ceremony. Some are expensive and elaborate and fancy. Some are simple, in the backyard, attended by just a few of their closest family and friends. There are destination weddings in a beautiful tropical place. Some follow long-standing traditions like something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. I never understood that. Some will exchange vows in a courthouse with a judge as the officiant. And then there's this one about Boaz and Ruth. When we read this story, there are concepts that we don't fully understand. Leveret's marriage. Why a surviving brother is obligated to marry the widow of his deceased brother who has bore no children. Or a kinsman redeemer for that matter. A male relative who has the responsibility of helping a relative or, or a family in need of, uh, of help or in danger. Uh, I mean, I understand some of that, but to go as far as to marry them. And why does Ruth have to marry a relative of her father-in-law? Why does she have to? Why did Ruth need to be redeemed? And how is the purchase of a property of Naomi connected to the marriage to Ruth? To be honest, these practices seem quite odd and, and completely antiquated. I might react the same way as the co-workers of this 35-year-old Japanese man who married a fictitious cartoon character and say, ew, that's gross. Well, there may be more to the story and the laws than meets the eye. Perhaps the reason why we don't fully understand these customs is because we don't understand their purpose. For one, the laws or these customs were put in place to ensure continuity of the deceased. It had to do with property, 
It had to do with an heir. It had to do with a legacy or carrying on a family name. And as much as this was true, more importantly, Leveret Law provided protection for the most vulnerable in society. In our story, it's a widow. In a patriarchal society, oftentimes the death of a husband would likely be the wife's fast track to poverty. And so within the laws that God had put in place for Israel, it was that the least of these, those who were the most vulnerable in society, would be taken care of. The orphans, the poor, the widow, the foreigner, the alien. And so we think of Ruth. She's, just a, she, she's a widow, but she isn't just a widow. She's a Moabite widow. She's a foreigner. She's a nobody. She's an outsider and with no protection from the law. There are no rights. There are no welfare programs. There are no unemployment benefits, no social security, no universal health care. So in our Lord's divine design, he establishes protections through the law for the orphan, the foreigner, the widow, the, the poor. And so the reason for a goel, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the kinsman redeemer, was that there would be a person who restore societal equilibrium. Someone who would bring balance from the rich to the poor to the to the outsider, to the, to the native among them, to the men and women and, and the children among them, that there will be some sort, of, some sort of equilibrium or societal balance that those who had the means to provide for those who didn't. So the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, in line is, as Brad mentioned last week, Mr. So-and-so. An unnamed relative, his name is never mentioned in the book, he could refuse. He could perform something called the halitzah. It's uh, some Hebrew word that says taking off the shoe. And we looked at that last week. So again, if he refused, he would take off his shoe as a symbol of, of mourning. Since his failure to perform leveret marriage meant that his relative was now irrevocably, certainly, definitely dead. And then what we don't read in our text, but the widow uh, in our passage, uh, Ruth here, she would spit on the ground to acknowledge this man's failure to fulfill his obligation. And so that's what would happen in, in this sort of ceremony between Ruth and, and this Mr. So-and-so. Well, when he refuses, this is great news for Boaz because now Ruth is free to marry whomever she chooses. And after all, the buildup of the preceding chapters in one fell swoop, in one short verse, the author of the book summarizes the wedding, the consummation, and the birth of their son. In verse 13, the author writes, So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Very simply, Boaz marries Ruth, Ruth gets pregnant. And Ruth gives birth to a son. And so through a series of twists and turns, what began as a story of great sadness and loss and, and misfortune and unspeakable tragedy ends with joy and great gain. Ruth, who was, who was once the outsider, the foreigner, the alien with no real place for her in society, has now been included in the family. It's the one sentence that changes everything. Her life that once looked bleak and hopeless, has been transformed. Her position, her hope, 
her future. This last chapter of the book brings everything together, making it one of the greatest short stories ever told. You see, there are very few things in life more life-altering than marriage. I'm sure many of you can attest to that. Everything changes. The two parties entering that covenant cease to be what they were, what they used to be. The very first book in the Bible speaks to this, that the two will become one flesh, a union that is utterly transformative, sometimes for the better, and a lot of times for the worse. There's changes. And that's why precisely the Bible talks about marriage with this, this key metaphor to describe the way that Christ loves the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So contrary to what we think the story ought to be, it must be noted that this isn't a story about a boy meets girl or about a girl who meets a boy. It's not your typical Hollywood romantic love story. It certainly isn't a story about Ruth stepping into some good fortune and landing the perfect gentleman. That's not this story. My friends, there's no moral to this story. This is not like Aesop's fables. You see, persevere through life's difficulties and everything turns out good at the end. Or every cloud has a silver lining. That's not this story. If I were to attribute a moral lesson, if there were one, for the story of Ruth, it might go something like this. You have to believe in yourself or do something that you've never done before. Or success begins with small steps of risk. But you and I both know that these are not and cannot be the morals of the story. In verse 13, there is a small detail that you might have missed if you read through it too quickly. For the author of Ruth mentions, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception. God did it. And she bore a son. It's hard not to read uh, verse 13 of this section and without calling to mind some of the other miracles that you've already experienced in the Bible of barren women in Scripture who cannot conceive and some and in some miraculous or radical way, when all hope seemed lost, God blesses the womb and advances his plan. And again, in some ways, yes, it's a miracle. In some ways, it's not. For 10 years that she was married to Malon, they gave, uh, she had no children. And all of a sudden, it's the Lord's doing. And Ruth is able to conceive. This is significant as there's only one other time in the book of Ruth where the Lord is the subject, right? The Lord is the direct subject of the verb. In verse 6 of chapter 1, you may remember, Naomi and Ruth are far away in the land of Moab, and they're determined to return to Bethlehem, and it reads, the Lord visited his people and gave them bread. Two times, once at the, once at the beginning of the chapter, and once at the end of the last chapter, 
to remind us of the providence and divine hand of God in all of our affairs, that the Lord intervenes and gives a child who was once childless. That it's God's doing from beginning to end. That somehow, invisibly, God's, mo- God's hand moves in the lives of those who are His. And now this son who is born is not simply for Ruth, nor is he for Boaz. He would be a comfort for Naomi, the mother-in-law in her old age. And this is Naomi's happy ending. When we remember the book, how the book begins and, uh, and ends with Naomi, we get a clue of the bigger picture. The woman who was sent to go away bitter, right? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. And as we close out chapter 4, what was once emptiness, her arms are filled with a grandson on her lap. And then we see the unnamed women of Bethlehem make two proclamations. The women of Bethlehem say to Naomi, there is one uh, thing that she says about the son, Obed, who is this son of Boaz and Ruth, and two, about Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. Let me read that for us. In verse 14, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So if I can, I'd like to share these in reverse order. In verse 15, the woman proclaimed to her, Naomi, your daughter-in-law Ruth is better than seven sons. She who was once a foreigner, an outsider, one without hope or a future, is praised. Better than seven sons. After leaving her family in Moab, Ruth receives a new family in a new homeland, and she's pledged uh, she pledged loyalty to Naomi and, and to Naomi's God to receive the blessings of the covenant that God made with Israel. Her loyal love for Naomi pictures God's loyal love for his children. And she says, that's far better and far more remarkable and far more significant than having seven sons. Secondly, The women of Bethlehem give this newborn son a name, Obed. This little boy will carry on the name of Elimelech and Malon, of his grandfather and father. This little boy, when he grows up, will be the one to protect Naomi in her old age. The women offer praise, but their praise is not for Naomi, but to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. And it seems like the women of that town knew more than perhaps what we read in the scriptures. What they believed about the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, the redeemer in mind, the restorer. In fact, as we read through this section, and here is the twist in the story, that the kinsman redeemer is not Boaz. The one who has come to redeem is not this prince is not this older gentleman who sweeps this young lady off of her feet. The kinsman redeemer, the real one here, that again, the women proclaim to Naomi is none other than Obed. It's strange because when we read this, it says 
Blessed be the Lord who hath not left you this day without a redeemer. And she's not speaking of Boaz, the one she marries, but of Obed, who has been born to her. And, and they say to Naomi, may his name, may his name be renowned in Israel. In other words, his name is the one that will be famous. Not Boaz, not Malon, and not Elimelech. It'll be his son. The woman named him Obed, translated servant. And how appropriate, my friends. Born to Boaz and Ruth as the rescuer, as the redeemer, as the restorer. They say his name will be renowned in Israel. His birth will be told throughout Israel as the witness to what God does and yet does among them among his own people. You see, when we read through this, it is that God has not left them, that God has not abandoned them, or that God has abandoned his promises to them, that perhaps he has had a, he has had a memory lapse in his care for his own church. If this book qualifies as a love story, it is a love story about a God who never leaves nor forsakes his people. That God loves his people with an everlasting love. I read the story, and it goes so quickly. You know, so much time passes in just one verse. In one verse, in verse 13, it talks about a wedding talks about a conception, talks about a birth. And my question as I read it was, why does the author breeze over these exciting life events so quickly? You know, these are the places you stop and, and give details. You say it with a smile. You know, who doesn't love hearing about what happened on these momentous occasions of the Bible? or the momentous occasions of our own life. You know, if I were to share stories, I might share a time, uh, a, a time, I might share a story about the time that Karen and I first met. And then I won't. Or the day that uh, when Karen and I got married, we hardly had time to sit and eat our dinner and then pause and, and not finish that story. Or when my firstborn son was getting ready to make his entrance into the world, and my wife was at work, and I was taking a nap on the couch. Or the time when my wife and I decided to take a great leap of faith with some of our closest friends and plant a small church. You know, we want to hear the deets, right? We want to hear the details. We want to know what happened. But the author doesn't explain to us the wedding or the, in great detail about the birth or the conception, again, there's not a lot of facts or details of these extremely joyful events. The Bible doesn't talk about bridal showers or bachelor parties or any of the details of the wedding day. I'm almost positive it was a happy celebration. 
but that fact isn't mentioned. Perhaps. Perhaps because the events themselves are pointing to something much, much greater. My friends, this book is about more than an ancient love story. Yes, Boaz and Ruth end up as husband and wife. Yes, she gets pregnant. And yes, she gives birth to a son. And those events, as momentous as they are, are not the main point. God brings together this unlikely couple together as part of his larger plan, and when they consummate their marriage, they had no clue of their larger meaning. If you really think about it, they were simply doing what married couples do and have done since the beginning of time. That's how it works. Some of us, present company included, have trouble with the way this book ends, right? There's no details. We want to know the details. And we want a story that ends, and they lived happily ever after. But this is how it ends. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The end. <laughs> it's like the credits, you know? I mean, who watches the credits? Unless you go to a Marvel movie. But I mean, who watches the credits? It doesn't seem so very exciting to us. It's, it's not how we imagine the book, at the end of a book to end. I mean, this is where I would insert happily ever after. We all like our fairy tales to have happy endings. But the book ends with a genealogy. What's up with that? That's the wonder of this story. Far from being an unimportant postscript, this genealogy helps us see one of the main purposes which, for which God gives us this book, this beautiful book of Ruth, this genealogy. The Bible contains multiple genealogical records. I mean, it's, it's filled with genealogies. And if I were to tell the truth, many of us, I, skim these sections or skip them all together. We find them fairly irrelevant and largely boring. But I could think of a few reasons why this genealogy is included. For one, it includes uh, or traces back family lines and family trees and tells us where people come from. Two, I think it validates a historical accuracy that these were real people who lived in real time. That the Bible is far more than just a fairy tale or a fable or, or some made-up story that tells us what the moral lesson is. Or three, that every name in the genealogy shows uh, a generation where God was faithful and God was faithful to his plans and his purposes. That again, what he promised the patriarchs of old way back and to Adam or even as far back as, as Abraham, that God does what he says he will do. Or four, 
It helps us to see the fulfillment of prophecy, that from a certain line or a specific family tree, that the prophecies will be fulfilled just as had been said. Or five, when we look at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, it is not purely a list of royalty or of perfect people. The genealogy found in the book of Ruth is only one of two places in the Old Testament where David is connected to the tribe of Judah. The list begins with Perez for, I think, two reasons. One, he's the immediate son of Judah, the line of Judah. He was the first in line who was the offspring of a Leverite marriage, connecting the genealogy with the storyline of Ruth. You know, I love reading the scriptures, and it's, you know, uh, over 1,500 years, uh, 40 different authors wrote this particular book. And when we read through the book of Ruth, we know and we see that the narrator knows something that Boaz and Ruth and Naomi don't, uh, do not. The greatest king in the Old Testament, King David, is going to come from this line. I mean, we have to look at this in hindsight, right? We look at this and go, yeah, the narrator knows something that these main characters of the book of Ruth don't know. They have no clue. Because in three generations, uh, the greatest king of Israel will come from this line. But you and I know something that the narrator doesn't know. That eventually the king of all kings, the greatest king who ever lived, the greatest king who was selfless, and served and loved his people well. The one who would send his only son. A baby who would be born 2,000 years ago. That that king would come from this story as well. You see, what looks like a simple personal story of emptiness and filling of personal needs turns out to be God's way of meeting a far greater need. That from this line, a baby would be born in Bethlehem who would expose himself to pain and humiliation. It's because that, it's because that this is how he would come to save sinners. That he would come not staying at a safe calculated distance away, but only by coming alongside them and identifying with them in the greatest act of sacrifice would lay down his life for them. For you see, the love of Jesus is far greater than the love that Ruth has for Naomi or Boaz has for Ruth. You see, because this God left his place in heaven above, not just to the greener fields of Moab, but he left his intimate fellowship with the Father for the pain of this fallen world as you and I both know and have experienced this past week. That Jesus didn't merely risk his reputation for us, but he bore being made of no reputation, despised and rejected by men. That at the moment of his greatest pain and rejection on the cross, that there would be no redeemer to rescue him. 
For you see, this story, this short little story tucked away in the Old Testament is a story about God's love for us. That in some beautiful way that would read this uh, 1,500 years later, or actually uh, whatever the math is, 2,000 times uh, or, or plus the time of, of Ruth and the judges. That so many years ago that God would know our greatest need would be for a Savior, one who would rescue, who would come to restore and redeem us as His own. That God would know in His provision that this Son, this perfect Son of God, the one who knew no sin, would become sin. So that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah.